Malachi chapter 2 is our text passage today. I'm departing from the series on the parables of Jesus. We will finish that up at some point, but I feel led to uh, preach a message along the line of what we'll be doing in just a few hours, a couple of hours, or maybe less, and that is uh, witnessing for the Lord and praying for those who are going out and, and just doing evangelism, putting things in people's hands, the gospel. So I'm preaching on the subject holiness and success in winning the lost or soul winning. Holiness and success in soul winning. The two are definitely related, as you'll see in our text passage, chapter 2 of Malachi, and beginning in verse 4. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. Please note, especially verse 6, that's my text verse, the law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from inequity or iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. There's a definite link between a holy life and turning people away from iniquity. Before I even get into that, let me just set the stage by saying this. I'm sure you are aware of this, but Satan would love to have us get off on one extreme or the other, right? He definitely has fundamentalists doing that. But within the ranks of conservative evangelicalism, which would include fundamentalists, there are those who, and I want to represent them fairly, I don't want to construct a straw man here, but there are those who really contend for having power for the sake of power. And by that, I mean, they're all for getting professions of faith out of people, and uh, they believe that is God's sure evidence of favor. If you differ with them, if you challenge them, oftentimes, and I've heard them actually say this, they'll say, you show me the people getting saved in your ministry, and then I'll listen to you. I've heard that. Sadly, among this camp, many big-name preachers have had scandalous moral failures. Some are in prison today who espouse this. Others are in the grave, having left a tarnished legacy. That's one extreme, power for the sake of power. On the other extreme are those who are sincerely scrupulous about maintaining their personal testimony. I mean an impeccable testimony. They are pure in thought and deed. I have no doubt about it. I do not question that. But they do little, if anything, to actively witness and win souls for Jesus Christ. In this camp are some who can go months and years without speaking one single gospel word to their neighbor or co-worker or family. 
They're good parents. They're good spouses. Their kids love them to death. But they really think all they need to do is just do their duty and let their light shine. I hope I will convince you today, I hope the Holy Spirit will convince you that both of these extremes are wrong. We need to have an understanding of how holiness is intrinsically tied up with Christ-like compassion for the lost. God has forged an inseparable link between the two, between holiness of life and success in the winning of souls. Our text verse says Levi. We'll say more about who he was. I have a grandson by that name. I hope he's really listening good today. Levi walked with God in peace and equity and was rewarded with power in turning many away from iniquity. A definite connection. This is found consistently throughout Scripture. We come to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 24, and it speaks of Barnabas there. It's Barnabas, that good man, that godly man, that uh, uncle of John Mark. And the Bible says, for he was a good man, and the very next phrase says, and much people was added unto the Lord. They're not unrelated. The same important connection was made by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, when he said to his disciples, follow me and I will finish it, class, make you fishers of men. Do you think those two are connected? That verse certainly implies that if we're not being instrumental in fishing for men, something is defective about our following Jesus. Something's defective. I heard someone say this, I can't remember who it was, but it's not original. Our priestly power with man depends upon our personal walk with God. Our priestly power with man depends upon our personal walk with God. Down deep in our hearts, in the secret recesses where no one else sees or knows, no one but God, we must be pure and transparent. I didn't say faultless. None of us are. But we can be blameless, amen? And we need to be if we're going to win souls. So often our focus in this matter of witnessing, and and please understand what I'm about to say. I'm just still setting the stage here, but I feel it's needful. Uh, So often our focus is on using the right technique, using the right verses, the right steps, the right arguments. We may have learned it through evangelism explosion or the Roman road or Four spiritual laws, or even what we've done here in the last couple of years, uh, the way of the master. Good stuff. I'm not knocking that. And as important as that is to be skillful in the word of righteousness, there's something even more important and more needful. And that is to have nearness of personal communion with God if we're going to win souls. So let's not look further afield than that today. As we emphasize evangelism, and we'll be engaged in it in just a little while, let's look at this vital connection, walking with God and turning many away from iniquity. We'll do it under two heads. The first head is the essentials of a holy walk, and then secondly, the effects of a holy walk. The essentials of a holy walk, and then the effects of a holy walk. First of all, the essentials then, in verses 5 and 6, we read there, 
I'll read it again. My covenant was with him of life and peace. And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared my name and was afraid, or feared me, and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity, lawlessness, was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and to turn many away from iniquity. The Old Testament prophet Malachi is talking about Levi. Levi was the priestly tribe out of all the twelve tribes of Israel. God established a special relationship with Levi. Early on, his personal character wasn't all that great. But then God began to favor Levi. The Levites were the full-time servants of the Old Testament. They were the ones who attended upon the service of the tabernacle and the temple and uh, did it all the time. And God commanded the rest of the children of Israel to maintain them. They had no inheritance among the tribes. Jehovah Himself was to be their inheritance. They had the blessing and the privilege of being God's channel to the rest of the nation. But it wasn't automatic. They had to meet certain criteria, certain stipulations. I'd like to talk about three of them briefly. If we're going to have influence with others for Christ, for righteousness, these things need to be true in our life. Number one, faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to God. God entered into covenant with this whole tribe of Levi. He promised life and peace, we just read that, to Levi, and to Levi's son, Aaron, and to Aaron's son, Phinehas. Phinehas then was Aaron's grandson, and he especially stands out as the one called upon to do the difficult task for God. If you remember the story of Phinehas, he turned away the wrath of God upon Israel, As you go back to the book of Numbers, you you realize that Balaam, the false prophet, seduced Israel to commit fornication with the godless Midianites, their neighbors. Phinehas, I know this is taboo today, I know this is hardly understood, but in his zeal for the Lord and for righteousness, Phinehas took a javelin. I'm not talking about that surface-to-air thing that we're giving Ukraine that you can launch from your shoulder. Phinehas took a spear and went into the tent where an an Israelitish man and a Midianitish woman had committed adultery, and he thrust them through with that spear. One javelin thrust, two people dead. 24,000 had already died from the plague that God sent. When Phinehas acted for God and judged sin, God was entreated and the plague was stopped. And because of Phineas' zeal, Jehovah said this, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace. Same thing referred to here. That's in Numbers 25, verse 12. We are all priests unto God if we're saved. Amen? Kings and priests unto God. May I remind you of something that's not very popular preaching? I'm not known as a popular preacher. Sometimes God's priests have to rise up and judge sin. That's never pleasant. 
you always run the risk of being misunderstood. And because of that risk, many pastors don't do it. Many churches never exercise church discipline. There's always someone, if you try to do that, if you try to take a stand for righteousness and rebuke people even in love, there's going to be always someone who's going to say, who does he or she think he or she is? Let him that is without sin cast the first stone. It's amazing how many people know that verse. You may not know many others. Are you trying to be holier than thou? Please listen to me. Many people are reasoning just like that. And for those reasons, they never rebuke anybody in love. They let them wallow in sin. They let them damage their testimony. Is that love? To be sure, before we speak to someone else in love, or in rebuking in love, we need to cast out the two-by-four in our own eye, the Bible says, and then cast the speck out of our brother's eye. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we are to consider ourselves lest we also be tempted before we seek to restore our brother who has been caught up in a fault, but we still are to restore our brother. We're to do both. The fear of the Lord will cause us first to depart from iniquity, and then out of love for our brothers and sisters, we will warn them. And when we warn them, what are we saying to them? We're saying unto them, in effect, don't hurt yourself. Beloved, this whole idea that we're all fallen, don't judge me, I don't judge you, let's be careful about that. That's become the rationale for letting people go pell-mell into sin, and no one's saying anything about it. The most loving thing we can do sometime is to rebuke our brother or sister in love and to receive it from them when they rebuke us. I didn't get any amens, but that's good preaching, Brother Bob. We are God's new covenant people. According to 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or special people. Why? That we should show forth the praises, in the Greek, the eratos, the excellencies of Him who hath called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. God requires of us faithfulness to the covenant, just as He demanded it of Israel. Faithfulness involves two things that I'd like to emphasize this morning. First of all, consistency. You've heard the famous saying, consistency, thou art a jewel. That's ascribed to Shakespeare. I'm not sure Shakespeare originated it. Not sure who did. But I would agree with that, don't you? Consistency, thou art a jewel. You know, we can all manage to live outwardly holy lives if we know somebody's looking. But what about in private? When none but God is around. Some claim to belong to Christ, and they have a good reputation at their home, but I lived in a place for 19 years that was a vacation playland, the Cayman Islands. It's amazing what people would do when they get away from home. I don't want to tell you what they did. I had a lady in our church, Calvary Baptist Church there, who looked after rental property. 
And she told me about a well-known evangelical name, man and his wife. I will not name them. They've already gone on. They would come repeatedly to Grand Cayman for their vacation. She would set things up for them, and she would clean up after them. And she said, Pastor, you would not believe how much alcohol they consumed. She said, I can't believe it. You go to vacation playlands, and the watchword is, what happens here stays here. And a lot of professing Christians think that's the case. You are no greater Christian than you are in private when none but God sees you. What you indulge on the inside in your heart of hearts or in your imagination when no one is looking is sure some time or other to break out and manifest itself like a broken sewer line. Why? Because let's be honest, you and I are not clever enough and not disciplined enough to keep it hidden indefinitely. And sin is a monster. By its very nature, when you let it out of the box, it becomes a Frankenstein. It gets ugly. It gets bizarre. It gets more and more deviant. Can I tell you what Patch the Pirate has been telling your kids for years? Just do right all the time. Consistency. Involved in faithfulness is also transparency. The Bible puts a premium on guilelessness. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. We need to keep reminding ourselves of what Hagar said, Thou God seest me. How can we pop a sham on God? It was mentioned in song today, and I appreciate it so much, the sentiments from Psalm 139. I didn't even know they were going to do that, but David said in Psalm 139, Lord, you know my down-sitting and my uprising. You understand my thought afar off. You're acquainted with all my ways. Not only does a holy person abstain from secret sin, but he has no secret pleasure in the sins of others who are not holy. The Bible gives us one of the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Let's beware here. We all tend to be more severe with others than we are with ourselves. It's easier to do that, isn't it? But let's take care that we do not secretly delight in the sins of others while we outwardly condemn them. I hope you don't have a secret desire to hear all the sordid details of the reports of other co-workers' indiscretions over the weekend. May I remind you that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 12, it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Don't have an inordinate curiosity. 
We can become partakers of other men's sins when we do that. In Psalm 24, David asked the question, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? And he answers his own question by saying two qualifications. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Now the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they had the clean hands. But they didn't have the pure heart. And Jesus exposed their duplicity, their hypocrisy. Let's be transparent. Whenever, wherever anybody sees us, let's have nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, we all live in glass houses. 24-7. Faithfulness to God involves, secondly, the fear of God, or the essential walk involves the fear of God. Verse 5 there of the text, my covenant was with him of life and peace, Jehovah said, and I gave them to him. Notice the next phrase, for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. Now we know that for the believer, the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. Amen. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad you don't have to dread going to hell if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Perfect love casteth out fear. That's the fear that hath torment, John goes on to say. So this must be another kind of fear if it's recommended to us. Levi, the one who's in view here, the priestly tribe, he had a reverential fear of God as in the presence of a just and holy God. He wasn't cringing in terror of God lest God should suddenly get mad at him and zap him to hell. No, this is a fear of a different nature. But it's a real fear. And, and I want to take you to a verse that I think is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. Would you turn to your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5 has a lot of quotable verses from it. This is not one that is quoted as often as some of the others. But look at verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Paul says here, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What is he referring to? Without trying to refute all the interpretations that I feel are missed the mark here. Let me just say what I believe it does refer to. It refers to what he's just been talking about in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Yes, there is a judgment seat of Christ awaiting every child of God. And because our eternal destiny is not in question, because once saved, always saved, a lot of us have the idea that this is just going to be an awards day ceremony like we'll have here at Friendship in the next few days. It's just going to be a cakewalk. May I remind you that the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be some believers that will hang their heads in shame. It's going to be exposed what they've done, whether it be good or bad. And it should terrorize us to some extent at that prospect and cause us to warn and persuade men. There should be a holy urgency about that matter. 
All tears will not be wiped away until the great white throne judgment. There will be tears shed at the judgment seat of Christ. Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12 say, If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it, and he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it, and shall not he render to every man according to his works? Those are solemn, searching words. I'm telling you this morning, fellow believer, it's going to go ill with Christians who have not lifted a finger or raised their voice to warn their friends and loved ones of that awful, imminent reality of hell. How can we be anything less than earnest with eternity-bound men and women who are rearranging deck chairs and dancing with the, under the stars while the Titanic is sinking under their feet? How can we be anything less than earnest? We can scream ourselves hoarse at a ball game or a concert, but oh, the devil spooks us out when it comes to doing that. There needs to be a fear of God about this matter. The terror of the Lord that causes us to persuade men. Third thing that's an essential with a holy walk with God is harmony with God. God said about, Jehovah said about um, Levi here back in Malachi chapter 3, He walked with me, the latter part of verse 6. He walked with me. We recall those familiar lines in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? We need to be in agreement with God. We need to agree with Him about holiness, about righteousness. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. How can you take the Lord of love and mercy with you and frequent the haunts of sin. Would you stop to pray? If you went out to Las Vegas and you went inside the casino, would you stop to pray before playing the roulette wheel or the slot machine? (laughs) I've heard some chuckles. Of course not. And yet I know a man right sitting in prison right now who cheated on his wife and eventually shot the husband of the woman he was having an affair with, who when he would get together with this woman, he would have devotions with her. Talk about messed up. To walk with God, what a commonplace expression. And yet how rare it is Do we really believe that the greatest hindrance to the conversion of men and women around us is not their hardness of heart, but our lack of holiness? No wonder we have such little influence in turning men away from iniquity when we're caught up in iniquity. (laughs) He walked with me, first of all, in peace. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, amen? They should be called the children of God. 
I love what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, because it applies to me as a preacher of the gospel, just like it applied to Timothy. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. You know, it's amazing how God uses this peaceable, calm disposition to disarm the unsaved. If you really walk in peace, people are going to notice it. When everybody else is falling apart, they'll see you're different. It was that way with Paul on on board that ship to Rome when they had the shipwreck. He was on board with 276 other prisoner sailors, and there was a a cyclone or a, a hurricane for days, for two weeks. They never saw the light of the sun, and all these men were beside themselves. They were completely forlorn. They were discouraged. They were falling apart. They were tossed with a tempest. All of them except one, good old Paul, that short, bald, Baptist preacher. He steps forward and he says, be of good cheer. (laughs) Nobody's going to lose their life. Just do what I tell you to do. Isn't that amazing how a Christian stands out at a time like that because of their calmness? Where did he get that from? Was that just his nature? Oh, no, no, no. He was a pretty fiery guy. This is what he said. There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. And he's the one that told me what I just told you. The presence of Christ gives us that calmness. He walked with me in peace. He walked with me in equity is the next word mentioned. What is equity? Well, the the Hebrew word here means rectitude, moral rectitude, which could be translated fairness, impartiality, justice. Now, we use that term a little bit differently. Most of the time when we talk about equity, we're talking about the value we have in our property, our home. What is equity in that sense? Equity is the value of your property less the amount you owe on it. If you're upside down, you you ain't got no equity. Would you like to know the true worth of a man? The true worth of a man or a woman is his or her willingness to serve God apart from God's doing any favors for them, because let me remind you, God doesn't owe us anything. We all deserve hell, and anything is better than hell. And Satan, remember what he said to God about Job? Does Job serve you for naught? Is he just serving you for yourself? No, he knows that you buttered his bread. That's why he doesn't curse you. So God let Satan touch Job and take away everything that he had, and Job didn't curse God, and God proved the devil wrong. God proved that Job was serving him for who he was, not for his favors. That was his worth. That was his equity. So I ask you this morning, will you still serve God and live a holy life when the chips are down? 
If you believe some pretty um, credentialed experts, we're in store for some rough economic times. It's only begun. You may lose your job. You may be lied about like Joseph. You may have your good evil spoken of. You may be diagnosed with cancer. You may have a wayward child break your heart and squander your assets. You may be passed over for a promotion at work because of bias or political correctness. How are you going to respond? Are you going to seek relief or revenge through sin? That's the way a lot of people do. When those things happen, your true worth will be seen. Your equity. Secondly, I want you to see the effect of a holy walk, not just the essentials of it. I love the latter part of verse 6. The promise associated with walking with God in peace and equity is will turn many away from iniquity. Could there be a greater privilege than that? We've got to see this for what it is, folks, because a lot of Christians are getting distracted these days. Could there be anything greater than being instrumental in getting people to forsake sin and embrace righteousness? What can compare with that in the light of eternity? Well, a lot of people think that forsaking a dictatorship and embracing democracy is great. That cannot compare with getting people to forsake sin and embrace righteousness. Democracy is not the panacea of man. I'm glad we have a somewhat of a democratic government. It's a constitutional republic. May I remind you that one day democracy will elect the Antichrist? What can compare to forsaking sin and embracing righteousness? Would it be to get people to forsake socialism and embrace capitalism? I'm all for capitalism. I'm sure glad we have it in America. To the extent we do, it's under attack. But capitalists can get greedy. Capitalists can get corrupt. Capitalists can collude with government officials and... Refuse to enforce and prosecute. What can compare with getting people to forsake sin and embrace righteousness? Would it be to get them to forsake liberal policies and embrace conservatism? Boy, it's real quiet. I'm all for embracing conservatism. That might make... The economy improved, that might retard social decay for a while, but may I remind you that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were as conservative as you can get. They were the right-wingers, and Jesus denounced them, and they hated Him. What can compare with getting people to forsake sin and embrace righteousness? To eradicate poverty and malnutrition and COVID and AIDS and get people to embrace health and prosperity? If you listen to some people, you'd think that was the ultimate in life. But what if you could get, have success in that in Africa and in other places, but people still held on to their fetishes and their false religion? 
You eradicated disease. You eradicated poverty. You eradicated malnutrition. What have you done? You have only fattened people up for the ultimate slaughter. Let's think about this, folks. Let's get it settled in our minds so we don't get carried away with something else that seems so attractive and has caught up so many other good people in it. Nothing can compare with the joy and the privilege of turning people away from sin under Christ and His righteousness. Nothing. Nothing. God commended Levi for that. It wasn't so much what he said but how he lived that was owned and blessed of God to the turning of many away from iniquity. Oh, the impact, the enduring legacy of just one holy life. I'll say two things about that and then I'm done. First of all, holiness of life empowers. Hear me again. There is no power in the world, absolutely none, as irrepressible as the power of personal holiness. I love to read, and I find that some of these stories not as often as I would like. I love to read about when believers who have died, and even after they've died, people are still drawn to Christ because of their influence and witness, because of their holy life. One of the saintliest men that I ever read after was the great... Um, Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane in Dundee, Scotland at St. Peter's. Just like David Brainerd and John or Henry Martin, he didn't even live to see his 30th birthday, but oh, how he burned brightly for Jesus. After he died, before his 30th birthday, a couple of months later, a note addressed to him was found unopened. It was sent to him when he was in his terminal condition, and I'll read it word for word. Dear sir, talking to Robert Murray McShane, I hope you will pardon a stranger for addressing you a few lines. I heard you preach last Sunday evening, and it pleased God to bless that sermon to my soul. It was not so much what you said as your manner of speaking that struck me. I saw in you a beauty of holiness that I never saw before. Oh, I would give anything if I could say to my blessed Savior what I heard you say in your prayer. Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. McShane was gone. It's amazing how much power we can have with men and how long that power will last when we're right with God. We read from Psalm 51 at the beginning of the service, the first 13 verses. You know the setting of that. This was after David had sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet came in and said, Thou art the man. And David proved his worth by humbling himself before God and being utterly prostrated and confessing his sin, and God forgave him. Have you ever thought about how long it might have been between his sin and when he confessed it? It was probably about a year. We know it was at least nine months. That means for a whole year, David was powerless For a whole year, he couldn't witness. For a whole year, he couldn't praise God. His harp was silent. No psalms came from his pen. 
But after he confessed his sin in that great 51st Psalm, that penitential Psalm, he could say in verse 13, the last verse we read, and we did that intentionally, it's the climax, then, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. When? When we've confessed. When we put sin behind us. When we've forsaken it. Maybe the reason you're not part of the solution to men's sins as a witness for Christ is because you're a part of the problem. We need to get things right. God loves to use pardoned sinners to win over other sinners to Himself. I like what Spurgeon said. He had a way of saying things so uniquely. This great soul-winning pastor, the greatest preacher of his century in England, the 19th century. He said this, he said, reclaim poachers make the best gamekeepers. And may I just kind of enlarge on that and say, pardon sinners make the best evangelists. People who have a sense of how much they've been forgiven love Jesus much, like Jesus spoke of that woman who anointed his feet with the perfume and wipe them with the hairs of her head. If you are overwhelmed with a sense of God's grace and forgiveness, if you still marvel, if you can't get over the fact that God could save a soul like you, you are just the kind of messenger God is looking for to witness to others of His full and free forgiveness. So if you have experienced redemption and God in mercy has pulled you out of that pit David spoke of in Psalm 40, out of the miry clay, and set your feet upon a rock and established your goings, making you holy. Why did he do it? I'll tell you why he did it. He did it so that you will go back to that same pit and pull some others out. Amen. Holiness empowers. The last thing I'll mention is holiness attracts. I've Noted, as I read through the Old Testament, when I come across that phrase, the beauty or the beauties of holiness, it's found four times. Could I ask you a question? Is holiness intrinsically beautiful to you for what it is itself? Or do you just value it if it helps you get ahead in life? If somebody praises you for it, may I remind you that God gives us at the moment of regeneration His Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is given to us in its fullness. We will let Him flow out like living waters from our innermost being to others. And I'm referring to that marvelous passage. You've heard me talk about it before on the feast day, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood in the temple and cried, and He said, He that believeth on Me, literally, he that believeth into Me, as the Scripture hath said, out of His belly, out of His innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. What was He talking about? The very next verse explains, even though it's in parenthesis, doesn't mean it's not important. But this spake He of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm telling you, Jesus will be attractive, uh, attractive to people if they see Him in us flowing out of us as rivers of living water. 
it will be attractive. A holy Christ-like life is irresistibly attractive. I close with this true illustration. One of my heroes, <clears throat> you know I was a missionary, so I'm partial towards missionary. One of my great heroes was the missionary known as Praying Hyde, John Hyde. He went to India as a single missionary in 1892. He labored for the most part in several places, but one of the places he labored, we have some folks from uh, India here. They're probably more familiar with this territory than I am. He, he was in the Punjab, and that was up to, close to Pakistan in the northwest of India. He was a great man of prayer, and God used him to cause many people to be swept into the kingdom of God. He covenanted with God, first of all, for one soul a day, and then it became two souls a day. And not just professions, but people openly confessing Christ and following Him in baptism. And finally, it became four souls a day. But the local official there in the northwest part of India was troubled because of Hyde's influence over men in his village and the great number being converted under his preaching. This really happened. The biographer wrote it up. He sent a man to spy on Hyde. This man pretended to be an inquirer, but his real intent was to be a whistleblower, to report back to those that sent him something so they could get even with Hyde and break his spell. John Hyde received this spy kindly. He invited him to stay with him. That was just what this man and his agents wanted. After four days, after four days of this spy being with John Hyde night and day, he went back to the man who had sent him, and this is what he said, He has no fault. The man has no fault. He is a God and not man. This was the verdict of a man who observed John Hyde 24-7 for four days. What if your house was bugged? Cameras were installed that you didn't know anything about. And people trying to find a fault, fault with you reviewed that. Would they find something in four days? they could use against you. Beloved, we are epistles known and read of all men. Let's make sure the type is clear. For the sake of the eternal destiny and welfare of others, if for no other reason should we not strive to be holy, please mark my words as I close. Your life and mine is not harmlessly obscure and neutral. Your influence is not neutral. Right now, whether you realize it or not, you are either repelling or attracting souls. The same man, John Praying Hyde, said, the stench of the uncrucified self-life will frighten souls away from Jesus. And he practiced what he preached. What's your number one desire this morning, if you're honest? Do you desire above everything else to be instrumental in turning people away from iniquity into Christ? If that's what you want more than anything, please see to it that you maintain a holy life 24-7, days a week. Let's pray. Oh God, 
Please convince and convict us of our unholiness. Give us grace to confess and to forsake. And Lord, we give you permission, though we scarcely know what we're saying. We give you permission to chisel away at everything that doesn't look like Jesus in our lives. Because we want souls not to be repelled from Him, but attracted to Him. Oh, help us. Help us to come clean with you. Help us to nip sin in the bud. Help us to be a recommendation of our Savior and not a detraction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.